TED Audio Collective. Hello, this is Chris Anderson, the guy who gets to run TED. You're about to hear a talk from TED 2019 featuring the New York Times columnist David Brooks. If his way of thinking appeals to you, I invite you to take a listen to my podcast, The TED Interview, where David and I spend an hour diving deeper into the ideas you're about to hear. We talk, for example, about how individualism has created a crisis of isolation and what he thinks the fix might be. That's The TED Interview on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash Bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash TED Talks. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED Talks. Odoo, modern management made simple. Uh, So we all have bad seasons in life. uh, And I had one in 2013. My marriage had just ended and I was humiliated by that failed commitment. My kids had left home for college or were leaving. I grew up mostly in the conservative movement, but conservatism had changed, so I'd lost a lot of those friends too. And so what I did is I lived alone in an apartment Uh, and I just worked. If you open the kitchen drawers where there should have been utensils, there were post-it notes. If you open the other drawers where there should have been plates, I had envelopes. Uh, I had work friends, weekday friends, but I didn't have weekend friends. And so my weekends were these long, howling silences. And I was lonely. And loneliness unexpectedly came to me in the form of, um, it felt like fear, a burning in my stomach. And it felt a little like drunkenness, uh, just making bad decisions or just fluidity, a lack of solidity. And the painful part of that moment was the awareness that the emptiness in my apartment was just reflective of the emptiness in myself. And that I'd fallen for some of the lies that our culture tells us. The first lie is that career success is fulfilling. I've had a fair bit of career success, and I found that it helps me avoid the shame I would feel if I felt myself a failure, but it hasn't given me any positive good. The second lie is I can make myself happy. That if I just win one more victory, lose 15 pounds, do a little more yoga, I'll get happy. And that's the lie of self-sufficiency. But as anybody on their deathbed will tell you, the things that make people happy is the deep relationships of life, the losing of self-sufficiency. The third lie is the lie of the meritocracy. The the message of the meritocracy is you are what you accomplish. The myth of the meritocracy is you can earn dignity by attaching yourself to prestigious brands. The emotion of the meritocracy is conditional love. You can earn your way to love. The anthropology of the meritocracy is you're not a soul to be purified. You're a set of skills to be maximized. 
And the evil of the meritocracy is that people who've achieved a little more than others are actually worth a little more than others. And so the wages of sin are sin, and my sins were the sins of omission, not reaching out, failing to show up for my friends, evasion, avoiding conflict. And the weird thing was that as I was falling into the valley, it was a valley of disconnection. A lot of other people were doing that too. Uh, and that's sort of the secret to my career. A lot of the things that happen to me are always happening to a lot of other people. Uh, I'm a very average person with above-average communication skills. <laughs> and so I was detached. And at the same time, a lot of other people were detached and isolated and fragmented from each other. 35% of Americans over 45 are chronically lonely. Only 8% of Americans report having meaningful conversation with their neighbors. Only 32% of Americans say they trust their neighbors, and only 18% of millennials. The fastest-growing political party is unaffiliated. The fastest-growing religious movement is unaffiliated. Depression rates are rising. Mental health problems are rising. The suicide rate has risen 30% since 1999. For teen suicides over the last several years, the suicide rate has risen by 70%. 45,000 Americans kill themselves every year. 72,000 die from opiate addictions. Life expectancy is falling, not rising. So what do I mean to tell you? I came here, I flew out here to say that we have an economic crisis, we have an environmental crisis, we have a political crisis. We also have a social and relational crisis. We're in the valley. We're fragmented from each other. We've got cascades of lies coming out of Washington. We're in the valley. And so I've spent the last five years, how do you get out of a valley? And the Greeks used to say, you suffer your way to wisdom. And from that dark period where I started, I've had a few realizations. The first is freedom sucks. Economic freedom is okay, political freedom is great, social freedom sucks. The unrooted man is the adrift man, the unrooted man is the unremembered man because he's uncommitted to things. Freedom is not a a river, it's not an ocean you want to swim in, it's a river you want to get across so you can commit and plant yourself on the other side. The second thing I learned is that when you have one of those bad moments in life, you can either be broken or you can be broken open. And we all know people who are broken. They've endured some pain or grief, they get smaller, they get angrier, resentful, they lash out. As the saying is, pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. But other people are broken open. Suffering's great power is that it's an interruption of life. It reminds you you're not the person you thought you were. The theologian Paul Tillich said, what suffering does is it carves through the, what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul, and it carves through that, revealing a cavity below, and it carves through that, revealing a cavity below. You realize there are depths of yourself you never anticipated, and only spiritual and relational food will fill those depths. And when you get down there, you get out of the head of the ego, and you get into the heart the desiring heart, the idea that what we really yearn for is longing and love for another, the kind of thing that Louis de Bernier described in his book, Captain Corelli's Mandolin. He had an old guy talking to his daughter about his relationship with his late wife, and the old guy says, love itself is whatever is left over when being in love is burned away, and this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew towards each other underground, and when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we discovered that we we're one tree and not two. That's what the heart yearns for. The second thing you discover is your soul. Now, I don't ask you to believe in God or not believe in God, but I do ask you to believe that there's a piece of you that has no shape, size, color, or weight, but that gives you infinite dignity and value. Rich and successful people don't have more of this than less successful people. 
Slavery is wrong because it's an obliteration of another soul. Rape is not just an attack on a bunch of physical molecules; it's an attempt to insult another person's soul. And what the soul does is it yearns for righteousness. The heart yearns for fusion with another. The soul yearns for righteousness. And that led to my third realization, which I borrowed from Einstein: the problem you are you have is not going to be solved at the level of consciousness on which you created it. You have to expand to a different con- level of consciousness. So what do you do? Well, the first thing you do, you throw, throw yourselves on your friends, and you have deeper conversations than you ever had before. But the second thing you do, you have to go out alone into the wilderness. You go out into that place where there's nobody there to perform, and the ego has nothing to do, and it crumbles. And only then are you capable of being loved. I have a friend who, who said、um, that when her daughter was born, she realized that she loved her more than evolution required. <laughs> and I've always loved that. Because it talks about the peace that's at the deep of ourself, our inexplicable care for one another, and when you touch that spot, you're ready to be rescued. The hard thing about when you're in the valley is that you can't climb out. Somebody has to reach in and pull you out. It happened to me. I got luckily invited over to a house by a couple named Kathy and David, and they were uh, uh, they had a kid in the D.C. public schools named Santi. Santi had a friend who needed a place to stay because his mom had some health issues. And then that kid had a friend, and that kid had a friend, and that kid had a friend. When I went to their house six years ago, I walk in the door. There's like 25 around the kitchen table, a whole bunch sleeping on the downstairs in the basement. I reach out to introduce myself to a kid, and he says, "We don't really shake hands here. We just hug here." And I'm not the huggiest guy on the face of the earth, <laughs> but I've been going back to that home every Thursday night when I'm in town and just hugging all those kids, and they demand intimacy. They demand that you behave in a way where you're showing all the way up, and they teach you a new way to live, which is the cure for all the ills of our culture, which is a way of direct, really putting relationship first, not as a word, just as a word, but as a reality. And the beautiful thing is, these communities are everywhere. I started something called the Aspen Institute called Weave the Social Fabric. This is our logo here, and we go plop into a place and we find weavers anywhere, everywhere. We find people like Aisha Butler, who grew up in、um, or lived in Chicago and Englewood in a tough neighborhood, and she was about to move because it was so dangerous.、Uh, and she looked across the street and she saw two little girls playing in an empty lot with broken bottles. And she turned to her husband and she said, "We're not leaving. We're not going to be just another family that abandoned that." And she Googled volunteer in Englewood, and now she runs Rage, the big community organization there. Some of these people have had tough valleys. I met a woman named Sarah in Ohio who came home from an antiquing trip and found that her husband had killed himself and their two kids. She now runs a pharma- free pharmacy. She volunteers in the community. She helps women cope with violence. She teaches. She told me, "I grew from this experience because I was angry. I was going to fight back what, against what he tried to do to me by making a difference in the world. See, he didn't kill him. To kill me, my response to him is, 'Whatever you meant to do to me, screw you. You're not going to do it.'" These weavers are not living an individualistic life; they're living a relationist life. They have a different set of values. They have moral motivations. They have vocational certitude. They have planted themselves down. I met a guy in Youngstown, Ohio, who just held up a sign in the town square, "Defend Youngstown." They have radical mutuality, and they are geniuses at relationship. There's a woman named Mary Gordon who runs something called Roots of Empathy, and what they do is they take a bunch of kids in eighth grade class, they put a mom and an infant. And then the kids, the students, have to guess what the infant is thinking to teach empathy. 
There's one kid in a class who、um, was bigger than the rest because he'd been held back, been through the foster care system, seen his mom get killed, and he wanted to hold the baby. And the mom was nervous because he looked big and scary, but she let this kid Darren hold the baby. He held it and he was great with it. He gave the baby back and started asking questions about parenthood. And his final question was, "If nobody has ever loved you, do you think you can be a good father?" And so, what Roots of Empathy does is they reach down and they grab people out of the valley, and that's what weavers are doing. Some of them switch jobs. They, some of them stay in their same jobs, but one of the things they have an intensity to them. I read this. E.O. Wilson wrote a great book called Naturalist about his his、um, uh, his childhood, and when he was seven, his parents were divorcing,、uh, and they sent him to Paradise Beach in North Florida, and he'd never seen the ocean before, and he'd never seen a jellyfish before. He wrote the creature was astonishing; it existed beyond my imagination. He was sitting on the dock one day, and he saw a stingray float beneath his feet. And he, at that moment, a naturalist was born in the awe and wonder. And he makes this observation: that when you're a child, you see animals at twice the size as you do as, as an adult. And that has always impressed me because it's a what we want as kids is that moral intensity to be totally given ourselves over to something and to find that level of vocation. And when you were around these weavers, they see other people at twice the size as normal people. They see deeper into them, and what they see is joy. On the first mountain of our life, when we're shooting for our career, we、uh, we shoot for happiness, and happiness is good. It's it's the expansion of self. You win a victory, you have you、uh, get a promotion, your team wins the Super Bowl, you're happy. Joy is not the expansion of self. It's the dissolving of self. It's the moment when the skin barrier disappears between a mother and her child. It's the moment when a naturalist feels just free in nature. It's the moment where you're so lost in your work or a cause you have totally self-forgotten. And joy is a better thing to aim for than happiness. I collect passages of joy of people when they lose it. One of my favorite is from Zadie Smith. In 1999, she was in a, a London nightclub. Looking for her friends, wondering where her handbag was, and suddenly, as she writes, a rail-thin man with enormous eyes reached across a sea of bodies for my hand. He kept asking me the same thing over and over: "Are you feeling it?" My ridiculous heels were killing me. I was terrified I might die. Yet I felt simultaneously overwhelmed with delight that can I kick it? Should happen to be playing on this precise moment in the history of the world on the sound system, and it was now morphing into teen spirit. I took the man's hand. The top of my head blew away. We danced. We danced. We gave ourselves up to joy. And so, what I'm trying to describe is two different life mindsets: a first mountain mindset, which is about individual happiness and career success, and it's a good mindset. I've nothing against it. But we're in a national valley because we don't have the other mindset to balance it. We no longer feel good about ourselves as a people. We've lost our defining faith in our future. We don't see each other deeply. We don't treat each other as well, and we need a lot of changes. We need economic change and environmental change, but we also need a cultural and relational revolution. We need to name the language of a recovered society, and to me, the weavers have found that language. My theory of social change is that society changes when a small group of people find a better way to live 
and the rest of us copy them. And these weavers have found a better way to live. And you don't have to theorize about it. They're out there as community builders all around the country. We just have to shift our lives a little so we can say, well, I'm a weaver, we're a weaver. And if we do that, the hole inside ourselves gets filled, but more important, the social unity gets repaired. Thank you very much. For more TED Talks, go to TED.com. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.